Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Suzanne Lacey. San Francisco Museum of Modern Art and the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts are jointly presenting the retrospective, Suzanne Lacey, We Are Here. The exhibition explores Lacey's roots in early conceptualism and her emergence as a pioneer of what has become known as social practice, the use of community organizing and media-focused strategies to prompt events and discussions. The exhibitions, which are more or less across the street from each other, are on view in San Francisco through August 4th. Suzanne Lacey is best known for her ambitious Three Weeks in May from 1977, a project that exposed the extent of reported rapes in Los Angeles. It was the first of Lacey's large-scale works that addressed violence against women, and that revealed Lacey's strategies for melding art and organizing practices. On the second segment, a listen to a section of my 2013 conversation with the painter Thomas Naskowski. Last week, we learned that he died at age 75. But first, Suzanne Lacey, after a break. Experience some of today's most exciting indie bands at Off the 405, the Getty's annual outdoor summer concert series. On Saturday, May 18th, Los Angeles-based Sasami brings her playful and joyful songs to the Getty for an evening of live music amid stunning architecture and sunset views. Learn more at getty.edu 360. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina presents Pop America, 1965-1975, the first exhibition to present a hemispheric vision of pop art. Visitors who know and love pop art for its engaging imagery will rediscover pop as a verb, a strategy for communicating powerful content throughout the Americas. The exhibition shows how Latin American and Latino and Latina artists made a significant contribution to this artistic period. Pop America features nearly 100 works by a network of Latino and Latina and Latin American pop artists connecting Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Colombia, Cuba, Mexico, Peru, Puerto Rico, and the United States. Pop America is the culmination of groundbreaking research by guest curator and Duke professor Esther Gabara. The first ever Sotheby's Prize was awarded to Pop America last year. On view February 21st through July 21st at the Nasher Museum. Visit nasher.duke.com. Edu. And we're back. Suzanne Lacey, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks a lot, Tyler. I'm not sure I've ever pulled something out of an artist's acknowledgments at the beginning of an exhibition catalog before as a way of starting an interview. But there was a line in what you wrote there that seemed crucial and foundational. You wrote that your challenge as an artist is to, quote, navigate the tenuous line connecting my and our, which I think is a really great uh, eight or nine word summation of your practice. When and how did navigating that line become important to you? Well, you might say that that is kind of an important concept for relationship that I've had probably as long as I can remember. I've been aware that my perception of the way things are is not necessarily that of other people. And that's, that, you know, sounds like a sim- simple statement, but for me, it's quite profound that I could like watch Fox News and then flip over to MSNBC and see two very different perceptions of reality operating. So the relationship between my and our is not only between me, my perspective and another perspective, but it also reflects the distance or the separation between an individual perspective and that formed by a group. And in my case, how perceptions are formed by groups 
is sort of critical underpinning of my work. Was there an experience in school or after school that led you to that idea, pointed you in that direction? I would say just the broadening understanding of cultural differences between groups, uh, such as gendered groups and racial groups, which and religious groups, which were me kind of foundational in the 50s. I avidly consumed Life magazine and saw both lynchings and Holocaust reports. And that sort of very early established a sensibility that for some reasons I couldn't quite understand. People were treated and seen dramatically differently. So I would say that, you know, my early experiences of social injustice, which were not named as such at that time, were kind of foundational to my later thinking. Well, one of the ideas at the heart of your work is that art can motivate and inform action, public action. And of course, for, for, for reasons related to my own professional career, this is an idea with which I'm enormously sympathetic. <laughs> it's also not something that the vast majority of art students are taught is something that's possible. Who taught it to you or where did you pick it up and how did, how did it seem like a possibility? You know, probably I entered serious consideration of professional art through feminist art and Judy Chicago. But I do think that it goes back further for me. I think that one, one's actions can create social change, that one has the obligation of citizenship, which is to try to make things what, in your perception at least, is better for other people. So I don't distinguish art action from other forms of action, save for conversations on aesthetics. And I think as an artist, I could run for governor or I could make an artwork. And they would have different kinds of impacts and different sort of scales of impact, but they would both be oriented toward changing, you know, changing things for people. Was that an idea you came to mostly through Judy Chicago, or was there maybe something early in your practice? No, no, there would have been the civil rights movement. There would have been many things. I mean, even I, I can't even remember a time when I didn't think about some form of, you know, things aren't fair for this group or these people, or why is that animal, you know, when I was five, why is that cat homeless? You know what I mean? It's just, Some people, I think, are born with a, or, or, or it's engendered, and I think about this a lot, because when you're thinking about art and social change, you want to know how change happens. How does change in perception happen, and from perception does change in action happen? So, so for me, I started with, how do you change perception? Your early work in, in the early 1970s, really for the first half decade at least, really, was built around women's bodies and how society and men in particular acted on women's bodies. I think with, 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 with the hindsight of, you know, 40 years of art history, it's easy to look back and see why that was an interest of feminist practice. But feminist practice still had to start for that to happen. What made the body something that interested you as, as a subject? Well, I live in one to begin with. Secondly, I was a pre-med student, so I've had several years of 
both biology and psychology studies and, you know, work in and around hospitals and so on. So how, how, how people live in their bodies and, you know, leads pretty naturally to how bodies are treated. And those ideas that did come out of feminism, or let's say came into focus around feminism. So if you look at the way black bodies are also, you know, the focus on the body and the experience of the body has emerged recently uh, in the last couple of decades politically, the same thing was happening with women in women's bodies in the 60s and 70s. Now, that collided with a movement in art, which I also was sort of at the beginning of, and that is performance art, which in, gen- in general was a focus on the artist's, artist's body as both subject and object, if, as it were, of you know, the work. So, so that the, the performance artists began to look at their own body in much the same way doctors you know, have a certain distance from their own bodies or have been reported to have that. And so that, that, I think, all of that together emerged as, in my case, a consciousness about bodies as I first began to make art, and in my body in particular. It's one of those rare things in American art history that artists on the East Coast and artists on the West Coast were, were doing that were similar. Uh, I mean, you know, you don't, you don't, you don't have color field painting on the West Coast, but you do on the East Coast, and and on both coasts, feminist artists were were exploring performance built around the body. Yeah, but it wasn't just feminist. If you look at Vito Acconci, no, it wasn't. But yeah. So so, and the other place, I mean, that was actually taking place, taking place. Some argue more or less globally, certainly in Japan with the Gutai group, and in you know Europe. There was a lot of focus, people like Gina Pane working on embodiment issues as performance art. And it's all happening around the same decade. And, and you even have an artist like Bastian Otter who, who comes from Northern Europe to L.A. And, and he's working on, on uh, the body and its ephemerality, sort of. Your early work substantially, repeatedly addresses sexual violence and rape. How much of that was a response to the culture around you, contemporary culture, and and how much, if any, of it was your pointedly, intentionally looking at how and thinking about how centuries of art had treated rape as de rigueur, and that the contemporary culture had been informed by that art to some extent and continued it. I think that that the the art history affected me very little. Ultimately, I used it as demonstration points. But I came out of a decidedly, you know, kind of mass cultural engagement. I'm interested in the way images operate in in a scale outside of that of the art world itself, which those paintings would have been relegated to, although they certainly would express a general cultural attitude. I was motivated by, one, a pervasive experience of fear or caution that I had since I was a child, I've never experienced direct sexual violence, but I found that to be enraging. You know, the attacks on the body, whether through lynching or through the Holocaust or through, you know, torture in South and Central America or through rape, I, I align those things as the destruction of the body, whoever's body, for sociopolitical reasons. And so I entered that field because, you know, frankly, it 
the the public culture in 1970 and 72 when I first began this work public culture thought rape was a joke I mean you only found you know I would have arguments in grad school with other artists about why I should appreciate Peckinpah's straw dogs because of its you know formal innovations and all I could see was a really glorified rape so I think that tension between how an image operates, which is a concern of artists, and how it operates to perpetuate cultural attitudes or sociopolitical attitudes is is something that I'm very interested in. And it's, it's really a kind of throughfare in looking at the way I work. How does an image operate formally for the art world? How does it, it embody those kinds of concepts that are that at least I'm interested in investigating? And how does it relate to a larger audience? That's a, sometimes a hard line to, to walk. In these same years, in the early to mid-70s, you're beginning to use animal carcasses in, in your work, especially particularly lamb carcasses. There's, there's works like Lamb Construction from 1973, in which you, you reconstructed a lamb carcass, Maps from 1973, and and you continue, although maybe with less frequency than in the mid-70s, to use lambs elsewhere in your career. What about animal carcasses made them a useful, visual, tactile focus for work? You know, a lamb carcass is roughly the size of my body. It's a little smaller, but it kind of depends upon the age and whether it's a, a sheep or a lamb and so on. But I think it's both. It has some religious overtones, although I'm not normally using those directly. But I think it is, you know, a stand-in for a body, the body. And in the case of most of that, those works, you know, the lamb didn't have a head, although in some, like, learn where the meat comes from, it does. But it's a kind of a disembodied body, a body that we can look at not only more abstractly, but more graphically and more viscerally. If you think about Stan Brakhage's work, and even artists like Keen Holtz and Terry Allen, there was and is, continues to be, a kind of strain of art, particularly performative art, that is, is very curious about a consciousness existing inside of a body that then acts in the world. So that's sort of the trajectory for me. Why are we here, in a sense? It's, I guess, a, a religious question or a spiritual question. Well, speaking of religious questions, it's pretty hard to see lambs in art and not think of how lambs serve as stand-ins for the body of Christ in centuries of Catholic art. Were you leaning on that a bit? Not intentionally. I am not a Catholic. I was a Christian, but the body of Christ was, you know, not a particularly present metaphor. My experience with Christianity more had to do with ethics and service. But I think uh, unconsciously that would be there. But the other, I would say, slight misinterpretation of my work has to do with vegetarianism, and I am not a vegetarian. So I think more specifically that lamb carcass stands for a human carcass devoid of consciousness. And as a pre-med student, of course, I did assist in a couple of operations and, you know, would have been exposed to autopsies and so on. 
so so I think it's very much flesh that you know has moved over the border uh, from life to death. In this period of your career in the 70s, you are often engaging emergent conceptual practice, uh, to use a horrible art historical phrase. And quite often your work, such as the anatomy lessons works, are, are slyly funny. Anatomy lesson number three has kind of pokes fun at a, at a famous John Baldessari work. In anatomy lesson one, number one, chickens coming home to roost for Rose Mountain and Pauline, a 1976 work, you're making connections between the leg of a chicken, which you're eating, and, and your leg. <laughs> I, I think quite often we forget how, how funny early conceptualism was. So what about the sense of humor that was innate to early conceptualism interested you and, and, and seemed like a good tool, if you will, for, for your focuses, your foci? I probably didn't think about it as a tool per se. I am somebody that's very interested in and attracted to humor. I think to find someone who is funny generally to me overlooks a lot of other faults in my friendship networks. And so I think it would naturally occur to me to be slightly ironic. In fact, about a lot of work. I did a series called Vagina Dentata that actually I inserted false teeth into my vagina and took photos of it. And I thought that that was pretty funny, although it might strike horror in some hearts. But it, it, it for me, is a kind of a poking of fun at a lot of the mythologies about gender. So I would say that the insertion of humor is in a lot of my work that people often don't read as humor. I remember talking to Martha Rossler once, and she was saying she had just been to London and working with a group of younger artists around semiotics of the kitchen, her videotape. And she said it was it was really interesting to her that they thought she was super serious. And when I first saw that tape, I laughed, you know, through the whole thing. I think some people likewise don't quite know or understand how to perceive the humor in Learn Where the Meat Comes from, my video of around that same era. And I think it's a kind of hysterical piece, odd, oddly hysterical, and is very much meant to be both funny and humorous. I mean, excuse me, funny and serious at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I, I, I wonder this all the time, but I guess one reason we forget how funny early conceptualism was and was meant to be is that kind of third generation commercialized conceptualism is dour. <laughs> yeah, and I also think that conceptualism is, I mean, that's even in and of itself an interesting idea because I've been told by some curators that they actually don't see me as a conceptual artist. And uh, that's because con conceptualism, as it became, as it evolved and became defined, was really equated more with language art or people like Solowit, which is much more formal and serious. And I really come more out of the strain of conceptualism that you know, might identify with Dadaism. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, Baldessari too, for that matter, right? I mean, that... that. Yeah, right. And even Capro, even Capro was slightly distanced and ironic, although I didn't think he had laugh-out-loud humor. He definitely was kind of distanced in a light and humorous way from a lot of things that he talked about and did. Yes, the word sly comes to mind. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> 
humor stays in your work late later in the 1870s and as we get into the early 80s in works you made about the Mona Lisa the famous painting famous portrait of a woman painted by a man in one of those Mona Lisa works you and Arlene Raven poked fun at the paint by numbers uh, phenomenon or sub phenomenon in another you performed in a booth into which people could look that was at SF MoMA in your painting paint by number Mona Lisa I get that Mona Lisa, the Mona Lisa is really famous, but what about engaging it interested you and sustained your interest over so many performances and addresses? Uh, it was a direct address to uh, comments that I consistently got in the early days of performance art, which is, oh, you're an artist, what do you do? Or actually it was, oh, you're an artist, what do you paint? And I, my major concern wasn't gender, Mona Lisa, by uh, a male artist. It was... It was the idea of the most iconic Western image that I could find. In a sense, that piece is very much out of my working class background. You know, Mona Lisa is considered art. And for me to emulate Mona Lisa, to emulate the painting of Mona Lisa, the creation of Mona Lisa, was to put myself in the atelier tradition. You know, I would learn how to paint like a man in a tradition of visual art that focused on painting. But in fact, I am a performance artist, which is a very new and emergent form of work. So that's what that work was about for me. And again, irony was uh, obviously quite present. There's this moment in your work after the Mona Lisa works where you go from doing a number of things that are in a way solitary or nearly solitary. I mean, a booth in a museum is pretty solitary. And then the work turns toward large attention-earning media coverage targeting group actions. There's some overlap here, but but in general that. Was there an impetus for going group-sized, if you will? I think that it's not quite as distinct time-wise as you would make it, that I would almost see it as two parallel tracks, one emerging out of a visual arts educational tradition, which is, you know, the artist in her studio working or in her body, but working in a more solitary fashion, and the other trajectory of social activism and calling attention to social issues. I used to so in a sense, it refers back to the my and our interface that, that you talked about at the beginning of this conversation. My is me, the performance artist, my body, and our is the collective body to which I belong. And so for me, those, those are two sites of work that I'm constantly thinking about how do you bridge. In my later work, it becomes less prominent as I decenter myself, which is probably more of an, a function of community organizing on the one hand and directing on the other. But I began working with other groups quite early and a lot through, for example, my teaching practice at the Feminist Studio Workshop. I would actually give an, an exercise to students where they would think about and create a character for themselves and perform that. And then they would go out into the world and kind of try to understand the implications of that character in a social context and perform or demonstrate that through their work. And then further, they would attempt to create 
a relationship with somebody that actually embodied that social condition and focus or highlight on that work. And if you look at those themes of my experience, perception, empathy, understanding, learning process into the social environment in which I and others operate and the mutual learning that can take place and then how do I learn from the other or the person that has an experience defined as different than mine and and its social situation. That's kind of the trajectory for me that I've followed throughout my art career. So while I don't have, you know, actual instances of that in front of me, I would say that my exercises and works at the Feminist Studio Workshop embodied that idea of working with others much earlier on than when it starts appearing in my work. As part of that turn toward large actions and concurrent with it, you and Leslie Labowitz created Ariadne, which was a uh, feminist coalitions-oriented organization that did many of the things that a traditional 501c3 does. What were some of the ideas and interests you thought that art could bring to, could lend to organizing? Well, let me first say that Ariadne actually grew out of mine and Leslie's work together in three weeks in May and in Mourning and in Rage. And having done the actual artworks, we began to understand that the the kind of protocols that we used, the ideas we were formulating in constructing the works could be seen in a larger, to, to operate in a larger sphere, and that is, you know, more the public sphere, which was why we created Ariadne. In a sense, it was a conceptual grouping of work that had been done and that directed us to kinds of work that we might do in the future. Community organizing has a set of ideas in it that were evolved by people such as Sololinsky and the Civil Rights Movement and the Highlander Institute in Appalachia. And I was influenced, given the era I grew up in and my political concerns, I was influenced by all of those, the farm workers organizing by Cesar Chavez. So, you know, part of that process, one of the central parts of it is to mobilize people through deep listening, engage them in terms of what they perceive to be their own interests and evolve actions based on their interests as it relates to larger social concerns. With feminist organizing, one of the contradictions with classical Alinsky organizing was that it's pretty hard to organize a community around, for example, wife abuse or family abuse. Because when you get a group of mixed gender people together, they're going to talk about their areas of perceived need, and it will never be those more hidden gendered issues like sexual violence. So feminists introduced into the organizing trajectory the idea of organizing specifically around gendered issues. And that would mean, given that era, rape or sexual abuse was 
pretty hidden. It was pretty. It, it was not a. It was not a, a, a an issue that operated at all, except perhaps pornographically, in media or connected with really really graphic crime. Uh, it was there was a kind of an undercurrent that you discovered in consciousness raising groups by listening to women in consciousness raising groups. These these issues slowly emerged and you would organize around these specific issues. So the other part of that is organizing was deeply connected to consciousness raising in the feminist movement in the 70s. A lot of the ideas and issues that were worked on came out of consciousness raising, which is each woman telling her experience in her own terms. And as those issues surfaced, forms of organizing took place much like the early labor movement where women entered the labor movement in the 1900s and introduced parties and birthday celebrations and festivals and pageants as ways of mobilizing labor. So feminists in the 70s used all of those techniques and more to bring together women to surface concerns which would then get presented to the larger culture through mass media often. So that, that's basically how organizing was incorporated into these art-making strategies. One of the things that Ariadne instigated, or at least was concurrent with, was a sizing up of the projects you took on. So from this point forward in Los Angeles and in the decades to come, increasingly all over the world, you would focus on projects that involved dozens or hundreds of people. I imagine that scale was intentional in part of the point, but sometimes I look at how relatively small the number of organizers you were or you and your collaborators were and wonder. How crucial was scale to to your projects uh, from, you know, 77, 78 on? I think scale is, in the case of Three Weeks in May, was a direct result of the need to operate within the public media sphere. It was apparent that the misconceptions about violence against women were largely perpetrated through media. And if you think about the incidences of violent rape that started showing up in the, you know, late 60s and 70s and the emergence of pornography into mainstream media, even into the art world by some early practitioners, you know, at that moment, it, there was a kind of a, a kind of an emergent sensibility that it felt very imperative to challenge. And so that the scale of the work in three weeks in May was for me the first dramatic, you know, experience of going public in, in a bigger way. And it felt like the right thing to do, the public placement of the map, the alignment with City Hall, our first press conference was coincident. It was, in fact, in the city attorney's office, and he was under media scrutiny for uh, shredding files, police files. And so when we called a press conference in his office to talk about the project, pretty much every camera in town showed up. And then kind of strangely and contradictorily, they ignored him and focused on our project. So it, it became apparent that a way to reach people outside the art world and to influence public opinion was to scale up. 
in terms of media. Now, the issue of lots of bodies in space, which you see in a project like Crystal Quilt or Whisper the Waves the Wind, where Crystal Quilt, there's 400 performers. You see that, that for me, the aesthetic of lots of people in space and how they operate within that is something, as an artist, I'm quite drawn to that's pretty much outside the scope of politics, but is, you know, a visual pleasure. Eisenstein's, the filmmaker's work, The Storming of the Winter Palace by the Russian constructivists, those artworks that, Sebastian Salgado's work, you know, in the copper mines in South America, those are are also visually very, very compelling to me. And, And it may be linked in some deep way to you know, to my politics, but they are also things that I enjoy looking at, thinking about, and organizing. It's worth mentioning that you extended this interest in scale and putting scale on view with with, with, with the archives generated by these projects. In 2007, you and Leslie Labowitz made a work called The Performing Archive Restricted Access. It was exhibited at the Yerba Buena Center the next year in which the the volume of testimony and material generated by the projects is is presented as as as, as a voluminous unit if you will that's a kind of an ironic commentary as well you know women's archives we discovered from my generation were often kept in basements and garages and the focus on archival material that was emerging in the art world in the early 2000s was sort of aligned with the idea of exposing the archive, exposing the history behind something. And in the case of that project, it started as an examination of how, in particular, young women artists born in the era that that work was created had their ideas about that work reformulated through its transmission art historically when they went to school. So constantly we found with the young women who went through our archives, as we videotaped them, we found that they discovered things direct from the archive that they had never been taught and that even contradicted some of the things they were taught. You know, at around this time, so in in, in the early 1980s, a lot of your work focuses on or is built around or includes conversation and enabling conversation as a form of practice. One example is Whisper the Waves, the Wind from 1983, in which you organized uh, 154 women uh, over the age of 65 to get together on two beaches in La Jolla uh, in North County, San Diego, to discuss their lives around, around tables. And then on the bluffs up above, a thousand people watched them but could not hear them. Two questions. First, why did concert conversation interest you and how did you come to embrace enabling it as as practice? Well, conversation, I mean, that goes back to your, I guess, really original comment on the my and the hour and the space between. Between me and you, that kind of fundamental template is also the space when you multiply it over and over between lots of me's and you's becomes a social space. So conversations, I found, were quite moving, could be quite moving. When people reveal whether it's, you know, I've sat in train stations in Germany and had really heartfelt conversations with a single person, 
and then in consciousness raising groups where you go around the circle and you keep getting deeper and deeper into a level of both individual experience that ultimately has moments where the experience is shared those to me can be aesthetically very moving and i i'm i guess you in order to understand that you sort of have to take a leap away from visual art into theater so we don't question on the stage in theater that something can be quite beautiful and moving in terms of the way it's constructed linguistically or the emotion with which it's delivered but a moment on theater you would you would imagine would be you would understand it as aesthetics you would understand it as conversation simultaneously i find that in real life doesn't always happen doesn't ordinarily happen but can happen and i see my role as a performance you know a director is to kind of create a platform where we can get deeper and deeper and deeper into that in this you know individual experience which ultimately creates a kind of a, a political narrative made up of individual experiences in the case of whisper the waves the wind actually you could hear them you could hear them in a pre-constructed conversation by many of the same women through the artist susan stone so as you stood on on the on the bluff looking down you could hear a pre-recorded conversation on the same issues the women were speaking about below. And there's a lot of aesthetic reasons I did that, but one of them was also technical, that I knew that you could not capture the live sound of those tables simultaneously and pipe them up to the cliff in a way that would be very, you know, very powerful and not without, at that moment in time, super technical difficulties. So so you could hear them, but you heard them speaking prior to the actual event. And then in that performance, you were able at the end to walk down and to, to speak or listen directly to them at their tables. So that kind of construction of conversation operates different in different pieces, but it's always an aspect of the work. Fair to say, I think, though, that in, in, in these years, in the 80s and in the early 90s, a number of your works are built around creating conversations that an audience may be able to see but not be able to hear. Why was that an important construct? Why was that a useful construct? Well, it started for me, and I, I think it would operate very differently today. I'm not sure I would do anything like this today. But if you look at Freeze Frame, I think from 1982 at, at, at the Roche Bouvard in San Francisco, the idea of creating, you know, first you have to realize that was a moment where a few people like Bernice Reagan were talking about coalition and the importance of coalition. But coalitions cross race, cross gender, cross socioeconomic class were not the typical experience of uh, people involved in politics. And although they talked a lot about building, you know, building coalitions. So at that moment, I was really interested in taking a subject like survival, how women survive. In my case, I was going through a breakup with a, a man that I'd lived with for nine years. 
And in other women's case, it's around economics. Well, economics was very much at the fore for me at, at that moment as well. But but the idea of how women survive as a shared topic, cross group, cross race, cross age, etc., was something I wanted to explore both personally but also politically. How did women survive in a culture which was becoming more and more apparently sexist? How had they survived all these years? And so I assembled groups of women that were pretty much framed around stereotypes. And sometimes the groups of women decided to bust the stereotype, to rename themselves, to reconfigure themselves. And all of that was part of the process. But the idea of saying, okay, let's let's work with elderly women, let's work with teenagers, those were pretty evident groups, you know, that could be seen as stereotypes. Let's look at disabled women. Let's look at business women. That might or might not be apparent, save for the way they were, you know, dressed and placed within the performance and the things they chose to talk about. But there were 20, I think 19 groups, and each group signified some experience. And within those groups, people were allowed to overhear those groups in an intimate setting of a showroom, to hear them talking to each other. And the idea was, what's the reality under the stereotype? If you just look at these women and say, oh, these are sex workers, but how do you drop beneath the stereotype, often visually formed, of the group to understand not only how they configure themselves, how they see themselves, but how they're you know, the the sex workers might be related to the nuns or the disabled women to the elderly Jewish Holocaust survivors. So so the idea was to to both form coalition, but to also look at how you deconstruct stereotypes. When I was younger, I remember looking at a child in a, a grocery store line who was uh, what we, we then called mongoloid, and thinking to myself, you know, I don't really understand that experience, but I know I could watch the people in the grocery line around him and their kind of visceral reactions of withdrawal. And I thought, you know, that's why is that? Why do we see that person and then have this experience of otherness? And how do you change that? And I very consciously went to work in a a hospital for that that treated you know mentally I think at that time it was called handicapped people and i wanted to deconstruct my own experiences with that you know at that time perceived as other and i think that if you look at race you know for me race is there's two two reasons you erase two ways to erase racism one is through a much more complex knowledge and awareness of structural racism. But the other is through direct experience with friends of other races. Until you're comfortable with and living alongside each other, I think racism will, will continue. That's a, long, that's a long deconstruction, but to go back simply to the answer to that question, conversation 
overhearing conversation, understanding humanity in freeze frame. You know, when you went from one group to another and you said, what's the relationship between the sex workers and the women who have experienced disability and are fighting for disability rights? And you begin to construct for yourself a kind of a commonality of experience. For me, that work was an early way to understand or to challenge your own inherent biases. In the last decade or so, you have started working in California's Central Valley. You grew up there. You grew up in Wasco at the southern end of the valley. As, as listeners may know, the valley is overwhelmingly agricultural. It's dominated by industrial agriculture and absentee corporate owners. Indeed, it is where American industrial agriculture was invented. Why did you want to go back to the valley and, and do projects there? I would say that, that in, in a sense, my desire to go back to the valley came directly out of five years of working in Appalachia in a small eastern Kentucky town and understanding not only the links with my own father, who was from that region, and understanding him better. Now he, still living in the San Joaquin Valley at the time, along with my mother, you know, experienced very similar kinds of issues. And the valley, the Central Valley, does experience it's kind of the flat version of Appalachia, or it's called that in some, you know, in some uh, literature. So I, I'm interested in the poverty, most mostly. It is a racially diverse, but you know, more or less integrated in terms of Mexican and white U.S born, but there's Portuguese, there's, you know, there's a lot of different ethnicities in the Central Valley. I think there's still a major barrier between black and white in that, in that region. But the, so all of the issues that I work on are prevalent there. But the one issue that is most prevalent for me is poverty. It's a very impoverished area. It's an area where the health concerns, the environmental quality, the education, those are all, you know, kind of key markers of poverty. And they exist in Appalachia in different ways. The environmental toxins there, like the environmental toxins in the Samokin Valley. I would say that that work is the least developed of my work, and I'm the reason I'm interested in talking to you about your work is that I, I understand intuitively, obviously, that place. And by the way, it's linked to what's happening politically in our country, because people that live in the San Joaquin Valley are, are pretty right wing. I mean, not all of them, of course, but as a culture, it, it sort of defies the, the myth that California is a liberal state. Those are people that vote for Trump. Devin Nunes is, is their congressperson. And I find those issues, you know, dramatically problematic. Why does my family vote for Trump when they, I don't, I don't know that they do specifically, but why do they espouse conservative right-wing politics when they don't have any money, you know, when they live in an environment that is devastated by like you say, large-scale agricultural concerns. It, the, you know, the Appalachia comparison is is so apt because in Appalachia, 
corporate degraders and exploiters of the land in which their employees live have somehow convinced those workers of the workers' fealty to the company that pays them and not very much, um, which is exactly what's happened in, in the California Central Valley, where absentee owners have done the same thing, even as they degrade, uh, remake, and, and starve the landscape. It's, it's, it's a place that was starting in the 1880s, uh, entirely built for agriculture and uh, the exploitation of water resources in a way that continues to this day. A lot of the pollution is certainly from the oil industry in the southern end of the valley, but a lot of it is also from dust. And yeah, all from farming, all from the way corporate agriculture, uh, large-scale agriculture is done. Well, it's not unlike the devastation in Lancashire, where I worked on a, a piece called the circle in the square with Muslims and Christians there. And, and it was a deindustrialized and it's where industry, you know, first came in and polluted and brought in immigrants and so on, much like the central Valley brought in immigrants, you know, to work in the farms in the, but in, in Lancashire, they came from Pakistan to work in the mills. And then when the mills left and the textile industry went elsewhere for cheaper labor, now there's left a kind of uh, an economically challenged region of England where issues of health, issues of, of poverty, issues of separation are all, you know, taking place in that environment. So my concerns would be the same. I just have to say that returning to the Central Valley, I feel, is a kind of an unexplored territory, oddly enough, for me. And maybe it's that when you go home, it's harder to see with any perspective. I've heard other artists say that, Robert Adams, for example. Suzanne Lacey, thanks so much. Okay, great. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego presents Trevor Paglin, Sights Unseen, at its downtown location, now through June 2nd. Featuring more than 100 works from the MacArthur Genius Award-winning artist, this mid-career survey traveling from the Smithsonian American Art Museum is the first exhibition to present Paglin's early photographic series alongside his recent sculptural objects and new work with AI. For more information, visit mcasd.org. Welcome back. Last week when I was in Dallas... A colleague asked me who I would most like to have on the show that hasn't been on the show. All I could think of is that we only had Tom Naskowski on the show once. Last week we learned of his death. He was 75. Naskowski was a painter's painter. He had over 70 solo shows around the world, and his work is in almost every major museum collection you can think of. All to weirdly little fanfare. His last retrospective was a decade ago at the National Gallery of Canada. He's never had an American retrospective. We talked in 2013 on the occasion of a solo show of his work at Pace in New York. Here's part of our conversation. In 2010, you told your friend Garth Lewis that you know how to make a Niskowski now, and that can be a real trap. I have two questions about that. The first one is, can you tell us what that is? How do you make a Niskowski? What is that way you found to make a Niskowski? I don't think it's something that could be reduced to a couple of elements. I mean, it's more of a certain way of handling the paint, a certain attitude about composition, about color relations, but it's nothing that could be reduced to a simple formula. So how do you fight against it? How do you consciously work against accrued knowledge? Yeah, you know, it's it seems almost pathetic 
to fight to win a certain piece of ground, you know, to learn how to do something and then deny yourself uh, all the pleasures of, of that thing you have found. You know, on the other hand, artists uniquely have to do two contradictory things. And, and one is that people want us to change. They want us to grow. They want to see our work become richer and deeper. But at the same time, they want to be able to identify it as our work. So, so we have to change and we have to stay the same in some special sort of way. So the, the, the question is really one of change. And, and, and for me, there are a number of strategies. But, but one, because I, I do have a kind of reality core to my work, a kind of kernel of, of something in the world behind everything I do, I try to come up with more improbable things to paint. You know, what, what can't you paint? What shouldn't you paint? What, what would it be really stupid to paint? And, and, and what kind of devices you know, are bankrupt, what kind of devices are, you know, so, so, so disgusting, nobody would want to look at them. You know, let's, let's try those things. Let's, let's see what's there. And, you know, I, I don't think this is an uncommon strategy. I mean, I think most of the artists I know employ some variant of that as we, as we all get older. You've talked a good bit over the years about what you use to help you make a painting. What, what, what motivates that? And we'll have links to a couple of your past interviews and Q&As on Modern Art Notes and on manpodcast.com. But I wanted to, instead of asking you to rehash that, I want to talk to you about an experience that you've referenced a lot in interviews, and that is how important walking and hiking are to you. Your son, Casimir, am I pronouncing his name right? That's correct. Casimir is a filmmaker, and he's made a couple of shorts about you. One of them is called Thomas Naskowski on a Hike. It's from 2007. So let's, let's hear a clip. Uh, here's a Tom painting. Look at how many different ways circles are dealt with here in this uh, in this fabulous painting. I'm going to paint this tomorrow. I guarantee you. That's awesome. You know the glass transparent circle, the uh, the little wire or the edge, of, probably the bottom of a can. I would imagine the edge of a can. You know, with the center rotted out, the green glass mimicking the circles, the green circles of the moss. You know, and then to really hammer the point home to you, we have this white plastic rim, you know, around this little isolated piece of moss, or maybe it's a little, oh, it's just moss. Um, and trust me, this was not a setup. This was, this is, in fact, as it really is. So how is going for walks and, and being out in the woods useful to you? That's an interesting question. It is the place where I find uh, a lot of ideas that I can use in my paintings ideas about colors and forms and relationships. It's a natural part of my life, but a very rich one and something that I, I use a lot. Is that part of why you moved to Ulster County or was that going to happen anyway? Oh, I, I, think in, I think in the 60s, we were all looking for places to, to move to. And uh, after a few years in the Adirondacks, my wife and I found this place here in, uh, in the Hudson Valley. When you're on walks, are you consciously looking for things or is it just that your eyes land places and something clicks? You know, I, I need a reason to make a painting. And for me, the reason is, is often that I see something that's confounding or I see something that I need to commemorate or to examine or to think about. And on walks in this extraordinary landscape I live in, uh, I see these things that I, I really want to pursue. You know, you, you know I've, I've said in, in some of these other interviews and, and uh, that you're going to put on your website that, yeah, I've said that 
before there was a written language, there was a visual language. And, uh, you know, our earliest ancestors, you know, would, would, would read the world. They would see things in it that meant something to them. You know, a broken leaf, some, some scat on the ground, some, you know, the, the color of the sky, what that meant in terms of weather. And, and I, I, I think that that's something that we can still channel. It's, it's, it's in our DNA, and I think we can, we can find that. And we can find it in all sorts of places. But for me, finding it back in, in the natural world is uh, important. I had Robert Adams on the show a few months ago, and he's it was one of my favorite shows to tape. He's he's one of my he's one of the artists who means the most to me. And he started talking about how important walking and hiking is to him. And here's what he said: I think still photography is almost inevitably an occupation for walkers and still photography's prime power is to is to find stillness uh, and uh, walking is just about mandatory you're not a still photographer but i wonder if <laughs> if you can relate to that sentiment in a well I, I, yes i can and and just to kind of kick this up to another level my uh, my father passed away two weeks ago. Well, it was it was the right time. I mean, he was 98 and his health was declining. But thinking about him and trying to write a brief piece to read uh, when we when we bury him, I realized that my happiest memories with my father and and you know like many children in the 60s, my memories were quite are uneven to put it to put it mildly. But but my happiest memories with, of him are walking with him. And walking with him, especially as a very young child, where when I would get tired, I would I would ride on his back. And also in, in New Jersey, but not in swamplands. My my father favored ridges with beech trees. But yeah, no, it's it's I, I totally agree with uh, with Robert. I think it is an important tool for uh, for any artist, not just for photographers. When I went back to find that quote to talk to you, I I had not remembered that that Bob Adams talks about not just photography, but still photography in that phrase. And I went back and I looked through some of your paintings. Do you ever think of your paintings as being still or in motion or one or the other? Yeah, I, I think I would think of them as, as something that's very still. I mean, I mean, kind of importantly still. I'm really trying to find something very, very precise in each one of these paintings. And stillness, some kind of stopping point. Is, is important. So you use brushes that are very small. I've, I, at least that's, I've, I, but I don't know how small. So maybe does that have something to do? Because I, I think to me, yes, your paintings are very still. They are, man, when I look at them from, you know, 80 or 90 feet away in a, in a big museum gallery or something, you know, it's not like looking at, at a Matisse or something. It, they are, you know, they're there. And I, does that stillness come from? Yeah. I, I, I actually use a, a whole range of brush sizes, but I do I do like working with 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 smaller brushes, and I, I especially like working with brushes that are a little too small. And many years ago, uh, when I was kind of starting to work this way, I would often work with a pen, you know, a little common uh, kind of fiber ball uh, ballpoint pen, and you know, very laboriously kind of create a background. And an art writer, Joe Mashek, called me on it. He said, you know, why are you, you know, what is this kind of fetishistic work here? Why, why are you wasting your time doing it? And I, I, I had to think a while because I hadn't, this wasn't part of some kind of grand plan. But I realized that what I found comforting was that it, it, it slowed me down, that it made me think about 
you know, the finest increments of a, of a curve, you know, the most careful shaping of a corner and, and, and what that means. And I, I think that, you know, every young artist will tell you that, you know, the most exciting moment in their education is when they learn how, how, how so very, very little tweaking, little adjustments, how so very, very little can accomplish so much, can do so much in casting an object free in space, you know, or locking it down in the composition. I want to get to some specific paintings, both some earlier work and also some work that's in the upcoming Pace show in a moment. But I want to ask first about a couple of your art historical interests. I've heard and read you refer to Song Dynasty painting a good bit, and I'm guessing you wouldn't keep mentioning it if it didn't mean something to you. And I can understand your interest in, you know, 16th, 15th century Italian painting, but I'm wondering why Song Dynasty painting means something to you. In a strange way, one of the reasons I keep bringing that up, and in in sculpture I'll often bring up uh, Ife and Benin bronzes, uh, the reason those two come up so often is because I literally know nothing about them. (laughs) I have never read a book on them. I have never uh, pursued them in any kind of academic way, which in a way is sort of odd, but I like them to have this, uh, I mean, they're really mysterious to me. Song Dynasty paintings look like they come from Mars. So, yeah, no, I, there is no reason other than my lack of knowledge, my lack of understanding. Um, in, in, a way, in a way, I'm afraid to learn about them, you know, because they might lose this kind of special hold they have on my imagination. There's this really special way Song Dynasty painters connote scale and, and immense mountainness and mists kind of lying in the valley between mountains by what they choose to include and what they don't. And so the paintings get this incredible depth. And in your paintings, not so much the current pace show, but but in your work of the 90s and maybe the early 2000s, there's often something in the foreground and a background that seems to be a little bit misty and distant. And so I guess maybe I was wondering and thinking that in in Maybe that's what you were getting from Song Dynasty paint. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you're absolutely correct about that. That there are there, there certainly were some affinities, which is probably why I started to look at it in the first place. You know, I mean, I mean, we look at the world for different reasons. You know, within within seconds, it changes. I mean, sometimes we're looking for you know what we what we want, and sometimes we're looking for something we need. I sound like a Bob Dylan song, and so and and. and, and and, 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 you know, I mean, we're, we're, our eyes touch things in all kinds of different ways. It's not a, it's not a simple process. And I guess this goes back to that idea of, you know, a visual language. I've, you know, I, as I mentioned a moment ago, I, you, you talk a good bit about 14th and 15th century Italian painting. I wonder who from your own generation you like to look at or, or about whom you think a lot. Yeah. Right now. I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to uh, Susan Freakin's uh, show of her works on paper that's opening in a couple of weeks at, at Zwerner. The Toyman's show up at Zwerner is pretty great. I'm, I'm, I'm really easy. I mean, I, I like much more work than I don't like. I mean, my, my wife always accuses me of not being critical enough. But I mean, I, I, your, your wife is Joyce, Joyce Robbins, Robbins, a sculptor. A sculptor. Yeah, I, I, I think she, she, she might be right. I mean, as a, as a young artist, I was, I was terribly critical. I mean, I got more fights than I, I care to remember. But these days, I mean, maybe as, as the demands I put on my own work become higher and harder to attain, for me to go out and see people, you know, kind of finishing paintings, you know, that's really kind of exciting and thrilling. 
I have a lot of friends who are who are extraordinary artists. Kathy Murphy is one of my best friends, and uh, Gary Steffen is a wonderful artist. And I, I I can't even start because I just here in the neighborhood where I live in the Hudson Valley are so many wonderful uh, wonderful artists. That's a good transition to the first painting I'd like to talk about, and it's a painting from 2009 that's now in the collection of the Albright Knox Art Gallery. We'll have an image of it up on Modern Art Notes and on manpodcast.com, but as a bit of shorthand, it's a painting with kind of a green and yellowish background with red latticework over it, and then in the center foreground, there's a vaguely head-shaped bit of yellow with a red vertical line that goes about halfway up through the middle of the painting. Every one of your paintings offers up something I've never seen before. But if I spend enough time with it, I can begin to tease out things that maybe I think I've seen before. And this painting's an example of that. And I, the first thing about this painting that I would like to understand better is that little red vertical line that comes up. And I was wondering if maybe we could start on that painting, if you could explain why that red line had to be there. Yeah, I, I don't have the painting in front of me, so I'm, I'm, I'm operating uh, on autopilot here. But uh, I'll tell you the curious thing is that that line was the, the last thing to go into the resolution of the painting. It was the sort of aha element that made everything else kind of click. I, I don't mean to say it was the very last thing to be painted, but it was the last uh, major element to, that I needed to make that, that painting work. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.